Jesus most definitely is the ruler of all, but that is where the rub is for us who are Christians. We all have at some point acknowledged the fact that not only is he Savior, the one who performed an act of atonement for us, but he is Lord. He is that. And yet obedience to that lordship is not a simple equation. Every morning that we wake up, we have to make a conscientious decision to submit to this king whose kingdom we have the privilege of being a part of. And over the last several weeks, for really 15 weeks now, we have been uh, going very methodically through the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we come to the end of that. Uh, This morning, this is the conclusion of Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. It concludes with verse uh, 12. And then for, I'm sorry, with verse, uh, verse 12. And then in verses 13 through the rest of the chapter, verse 29, Jesus concludes with a warning that we will look at next week. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we have seen what um, we have known so well, that when Jesus summarizes the entire Bible, he says it's a matter of what? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is this um, interwovenness of love for God and love for people. As a matter of fact, Jesus started off the Sermon on the Mount by saying very clearly that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he said, if you're going to be my disciple, then you must have a love for God and for God's word as well. And in that word, we find all kinds of things about how the Bible instructs us on how we are to live. It tells us how to love God. It gives us instruction on how to give, how to pray, how to worship. It gives us wisdom on how to relate, and it says that there is an all-surpassing and enduring righteousness that should characterize every relationship that we have. It talks about hatred. It talks about adultery, divorce, oaths, vengeance. In, In being God's man or God's woman... In all of those situations. When he talks about our religiosity, our religious practice, he says if we engage in these practices for show to impress others, they are of absolutely no benefit. And so Jesus has to contrast what they see before them as examples with what is truly what he wants them to do. So he concludes his instruction in the Sermon on the Mount with today's passage, verses 7 through 12, teaching about prayer and what we've come to know as the golden rule. Last week, we talked about really the difficult challenge that Jesus gave us. He said, judge, but don't be judgmental. Discern, but don't be damning. And then all of a sudden, he jumps to this instruction on prayer in the golden rule. And many people who are Bible scholars, Bible commentators, who try to outline the flow of thought, kind of scratch their head between verse 6 and verse 7, and they go, are we missing some verses? How did he make this jump? There is no natural runway that goes into this. It's like stream of consciousness where he went from one subject to another. However, I think as we consider the overall message of the Sermon on the Mount, 
the connection between what we talked about last week and everything up to this point and the passage that we look at this morning becomes crystal clear. And so Jesus begins by giving us some further instruction on prayer. And all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he has issued tremendously challenging truths. He's told us things about being righteous, about being humble, that purity should characterize our life, that in all things we should be loving, that we should be discerning. Last week he talked about being judging without being hypocritically critical. So in all these things, how do we find the balance? How do we love our enemies without being a victim? How do we practice discernment without being critical? How in the world do we have the right attitude and the right motivation in accomplishing these things? If you're like me, there's been a strange experience as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. My heart cries out and says, yes, this is what I want. But then my flesh says, how in the world do I do this? Yeah, I want to be that kind of person. I want to be a disciple that it is clear to everyone in my in my relationship to God, in my relationship to others, that I want to follow Christ. But then Monday morning comes, and it's difficult. He's told us some hard things. And if the Bible tells us we are to love our enemies earlier in the sermon, certainly we are to love those that we are critical of last week's sermon. Not being critical is not the same as loving someone. Not being negative doesn't make you a positive person. And it's at this very point that we understand something that Jesus is telling us in this passage that we do well to hear. Because as we see in verses 7 and 8, Jesus is practically begging us to pray. Say, really, Jesus begs people to pray. He does. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. God's word says this. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I think the point that Jesus is making six times, he's telling us to ask, to search, to knock. He's giving us instruction in how to pray. I think what he's telling us is this. To live the Christian life without prayer is impossible. To seek purity, to seek righteousness, to be loving, to be discerning without being judging, we absolutely have to depend upon the Spirit to guide us. We look at the standard that Jesus has set, be ye perfect, as your Father is perfect. And we go, wow, Jesus has demanded the impossible. But six times in these two verses, Jesus says that his Father will provide the means for accomplishing what we cannot otherwise. Do you believe that your life, fully yielded to God, would bear a fruit that you will not bear on your own? Do you believe that? Do you believe God could take your life and bear a fruit in your life that you could never bear on your own. That's what submission to his kingship means. That he, he will give you something that it's not possible for you to accomplish on your own. I remember um, 
a story from my childhood. I'm, uh, I'm excited that Publix is in the area because that was my first boyhood job. I turned 15 and got my learner's permit. And Dad said, you, you, you can get the permit, but you can't get behind the wheel until you've paid for your insurance and have a, a source of income to pay for the gas in my car that you will borrow. So I turned 15, and on my birthday, I went looking for a job. I, I was legal. I could work, and uh, we were about to go to it. And uh, I was nervous. You know, I mean, what had I done up to this point? High school. I mean, adults were teachers. You know, I didn't have to deal with businessmen. And so my dad was preparing me for my first job interview, which lasted all of about two minutes. And um, it didn't mitigate my nervousness. I mean, I I wanted a job because I wanted to drive. And I was going to be a bag boy at Publix. And boy, was I nervous. You know, and um, Mr. Strabo, who was the store manager, uh, made Goliath look like a, a little guy. He was tall had coffee breath. I mean, everything about him was intimidating. And uh, I was shaking in my boots because I had never done this before. And the, uh, the interview was very polite, very formal, very quick. What I, what I hadn't known was something that I was, com- it was completely out of my comfort zone to do. Um, my father had already greased the wheel because it was the supermarket that we shopped at and they knew my mother by name. And my dad had gone and spoken to Mr. Strabo the day before and said, Scott's coming in tomorrow to interview for a job. Sock it to him. <laughs> that was part of it. But you know what he had done? He had gone before me, and he had done something that he knew I had never done before. And in, in my mind, it was something that was impossible. But because I had a good father who knew of my anxiety about this new thing, this introduction to the work world, he had gone before me, and he had provided, in some sense, a, a degree of comfort, and a degree of provision that I knew nothing about until years after the event. And it just goes to show you the character of a father who cares for his son. In the same way, he says, listen, I have, Jesus says, I have set the bar very high. And if you will but ask, you can do it. You can do it. What's amazing about this instruction, I think, is this. What does he tell us to ask for? What's he tell us to seek? What's he tell us to knock for? It's not specified. It's open-ended. There, there's this astonishing, astonishing openness. Keep asking. For what? It will be given to you. Keep searching. For what? You will find it. Keep knocking. For, for what? And the door will be opened to you. What are we to ask for? better job, more money, more convenient circumstance? No. We're to ask for for His grace, His Spirit, His guidance, His power, and He will give what He demands. And this brings us to what I think is a very sobering point. I ask it in the form of a question. When it comes to seeking and asking and knocking, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? God, thank you for our food. God, help me sleep well tonight. Not bad things to pray about. You know, sometimes uh, one pastor has joked that prayer meetings can become an organ recital, you know. God, help my gallbladder, help my lung, help my heart, help my kidneys. 
You know, it's an organ recital. And it's certainly not inappropriate to pray for those things. We don't make light of that. But do you pray for growth and godliness? Do you pray that God will make you more righteous in your relationships? Do you pray that God will put a purity in your life that causes you not to laugh at the jokes that guys share at work? That instead of kind of going, well, you know, it was rated R, but it didn't have this. There was no legalism. There was just purity. You didn't want to saturate your mind with things that you knew, that you know are not pleasing to God. He leaves this open-ended, this opportunity for us to pray. And it seems like we pray for the spam of life when we could pray for filet mignon. We could pray for the greater gifts of grace, of spirit, of virtue. Praying for healing is great. But praying for godliness is better. You might not get healed, but you can get more godly. So are you praying for the better things? Or are you praying for the most base things? Because Jesus says he will give the better things if we ask. Now, one of the things that I think is, is important here, Jesus has tried to make prayer very easy. As a matter of fact, when he uh, gave instruction on prayer, he said all kinds of things not to do. He said, you know what? Be careful about doing it in front of people because doing it publicly will corrupt your motives. Be careful about using fancy, flowery language to impress people. And then even in his model prayer, he's very brief. And so he says, you don't have to use a lot of words And you don't have to be super articulate to talk to the Father. Some people look at this, the the verb tenses here. Keep asking, keep searching, keep knocking. And there certainly is a note in which in our prayer we are to persevere. But Jesus doesn't say that in the sense like he's trying to load us down with his great burden of prayer. He's trying to say, let's keep prayer simple. In the Greek, all these words are, are one single word. The tense and the uh, voice are all wrapped up together. He just says, ask, search, knock. Simple, one-worded responses to just say, guys, when you face trouble, you talk to everybody but God. You talk to yourself when you have trouble going on. What's that do? It gives you gray hair. It gives you anxiety. Do you talk to your friends? What does that do? It just makes you more angry. The only person we don't talk to is God. And what he does here, without trying to make prayer an object of burden, is he gives these simple one-word commands. Not laborious. Ask. Seek. Knock. And so his focus in this is not on our technique, but on God's generosity. God wants to give but you need to ask. Far beyond food and clothes, when we talk about God's provision for the birds and for the lilies, Jesus will give greater gifts, sanctifying grace, relational wisdom, spirit-empowered humility. I'm reminded of the great hymn. It talks about the peace 
that we forfeit and the pain that we bear, all because we what? Do not take everything to God in prayer. If there's anything that the Sermon on the Mount should teach us, it is our complete and total inadequacy when it comes to living the Christian life. That if the Spirit will not empower us, we cannot do it at all. But yet when we come to God in our need and we ask, He gladly provides. He gives what you need when you realize your need. Our second point is that Jesus intends for us to be encouraged by our good and giving Heavenly Father. And he uses a very precious human analogy. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Certainly the relationship of mother to child, father to child, is one of the most precious human relationships. And Jesus uses this as an example. And I love the Bible's balance because last week in the talk about judgment, God's role as judge was emphasized and now it's bracketed by this understanding that God is a a father. The father is the judge. The judge is the father. They go together. And notice what he says here. Jesus does something really interesting because he gives a very astute and sober assessment of our nature and his. See what he says? What man among you, if your son's hungry, you know, asks for bread or for a fish, is going to give him a stone or a snake? Verse 11, if... You then who are evil. He doesn't say we who are evil, because Jesus isn't included in that. This is his assessment of who we are, that by our nature we are evil. If you being evil can give good gifts, how much more can your Father, who is pure goodness, untainted by sin, who desires good things for his children, how much more will he do? And so the entire emphasis on this example is that we have a Father who is good and giving. Not evil and giving, good and giving. As a matter of fact, that that verb give occurs five times in this passage. God wants to give. There's a catch. In order for us to get, we must ask. In order for us to ask, we must know our need. And as humans, to know and admit our need, we must be humble. We can't put up with this illusion of self-sufficiency. We're okay. We've got everything. We have to be humble and understand ourselves in God's sight, recognize our need, and go to Him and ask. Because the only person who ever asks God for anything is the person who's been sufficiently set free from their delusion of innate goodness. If you think you're good, you're never going to ask God for anything. I'm all right. 
If you think you're self-sufficient, you'll never ask God for anything. If you're self-centered, because the person who thinks that they can never asks for anything. We're reminded here that we have to ask not to inform God. He already knows. He said that several times in the Sermon on the Mount. We ask not to inform, but because this is God's way of training his family. Most nights, most nights, not every night, after dinner, there's some form of dessert. I still want my kids to ask me. They don't have free access to the cake container on the counter. It would not be pretty if they did. I want to give, but they need to ask. Because simply on a human level, it's good to have manners. And God has to train us that, quite frankly, He is God, and He is good, and He wants to give. But it's not ours. It's his. And he has to train us to reinforce his goodness. That he has everything we could possibly want. And so whether, whether he is um, encouraging us to prayer by an open-ended promise six times, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For the one who asks gets. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it's open to him. Whether it's this open-ended promise or whether it's highlighting in these verses the universal love of parents for children and their desire to give good things, Jesus is really simply telling us, if you want to live the Sermon on the Mount, if you want these kind of things to characterize your life, ask your Father. Is Jesus is coming to a close in his instruction. This is what he tells us. No matter how wonderful our reputation is in the Christian community, we're incapable of living the Christian life without the Son, without the Father, without the Spirit. He simply says, Ask Dad. He has everything that you need. Now, remarkably, it's not the end of his instruction. There's one more verse that concludes his instruction. Verse 12, that we know as the golden rule. It starts this way. He says, therefore, meaning referring to everything that he has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount so far, Therefore, because of everything we've talked about, whatever you want others to do to you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. As a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides us with a very simple evaluation tool for how we're going to relate to others. How do you treat people? What guide do you need for figuring out thorny ethical issues, how do you want to be treated? There's no textbook that you have to run to. There's no guru on a mountain that you have to run to. There, there, there is even sometimes not even a need to pray. How do you want to be treated? Treat other people that way. Oh, God, I just, you know, he's so mean to me. 
God, should I be nice? Yes, you should be nice to him. Regardless of how they, if they slap your cheek, you, you turn the other cheek. You're loving, you're not aggressive. So his evaluation tool is ourselves. And his message is very simply this, that God's generosity with us is intended to overflow to others. Everything that God has given to us, we are to give away. If he's given us mercy, we're to give mercy. If he's given us grace, we're to give grace. God is generous with us. Therefore, let us be generous with others. And here's kind of the summary of the message. God delights to give as a good father. What, what father doesn't like to see their kids' eyes light up with a special treat or a gift? It's a wonderful thing. Colin got his cast off on Friday. He's still walking like he has it on, but um, he, he, he got it off. And so um, we promised him a treat because they come in with a big saw and uh, it, it's, it's scary. And I said, buddy, be brave. It'll be worth it. And he goes, what are you going to get me? I'm like, no, no, it'll be worth it because you have the cast off. But no, he wanted a gift. And so I said, buddy, I'll, I'll, I'll get you a Lego set. Well, like, that was like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. He was ready. <laughs> Cut that cast off now. He was ready to go. Every father delights to give good gifts, and so does God. Listen to this. Not only does he delight, does, not only does he delight in giving good gifts to his kids, he delights... <clears throat> like every parent does, when we share. What parent hasn't had to correct their kid because they've been unkind with something that you have given to them? And we never outgrow that. We still deal with that. God delights when we share his goodness by giving out of the gifts that we have received from him. And here's the thing that's cool. According to this passage... If we are treating others superlatively, the way God wants us to, whenever we give, what do we know? What do we know? We can always ask for more. God, you gave me grace last week, and I passed it along. Could I get another helping? Ask. He will give it. He will do it. The way Jesus states this rule is really rather unique. I think Jesus is perhaps the only person in history to state the golden rule in its positive form. There are all kinds of philosophers, uh, Buddha, who state it in its negative form. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And what's the problem with that? You can fulfill that rule by doing nothing. I don't want anybody to do anything to me, so I'm not going to do anything to anyone else. Boy, am I righteous. By being completely passive, you can, you can fulfill the negative of this statement. But the way that Jesus states it, what makes it unique is that it calls us to action. To state it negatively doesn't demand a thing. You could not do a thing and fulfill it. The negative sets limits. Well, I don't want him to do this to me or this to me or this to me, so I'm not going to do this to him or this to him or this to him. But what Jesus says is limit 
lists in its demand and its scope. However you want to be treated, treat people that way. In its positive form, you can't do nothing. You must do something. Here's the other thing that I think is unique about the way Jesus says this. It's so simple. It's so simple. But it's not easy. There are comforts and privileges that, you know, I belong to a, a, a club of one. And those are my privileges. Those are my benefits. Those are my comforts. Give it away. Ooh. Jesus doesn't give us an impossible complex of rules. He gives us one simple sentence that any child can memorize. And he says, you know what? It's a summary of the entire Bible. Do you want to be treated the way God says people should be treated? Do you want to be treated with respect? Do you want to be treated with dignity, with grace, and with mercy? Do you want to be treated that way? Then treat others that way. This is not pure social interaction. Hey, just be a kind and upstanding citizen. And No. How do we want to be treated? We want to be treated this way. Do you want to be treated the way the Sermon on the Mount says people should be treated, live it out yourself. Give it to other people. Let there be grace and mercy. So they aren't treating you the way you want to be treated? So you go, well, obviously, if they're treating me the way, according to the golden rule, they're treating me the way they want to be treated, so it's okay for me to be mean. And No, no, no. Don't twist the golden rule to be vengeful. It doesn't say treat people Figure out how they want to be treated by how they treat you. It says, no, however you want to be treated. When you're misunderstood, when you're maligned, when you're treated foully, that's not an excuse for you to revile in return, but to repent and treat justly. Lastly, it is God-centered, not self-centered, not human-centered. There's a temptation to think, indeed, well, you know, this is just a, a social issue between man and man. He wants to be treated this way, I want to be treated this way. No, it's, it's not that. There's a theological perspective. Sometimes we can twist this statement to say, hey, we should live this way because it will pay off in the end. I'll get more business. People will think more kindly of me if I live this way. No, that's a self-centered way of thinking through this. Instead... In prayerful dependence upon God, we live this way, not for some payoff, but why? Because ultimately it pleases God. What is it, how does it conclude? For this is a summary of the law and the prophets. Why do we live this way, instructed by the Sermon on the Mount? Not for a personal payday, but for the pleasure of our King who bought us with the blood of His Son. We live this way because such conduct pleases God. So this morning, we conclude Jesus' instruction, and next week we move into his warnings. And in between his conversation on judging without being judgmental and treat others the way you want to be treated is this precious instruction on prayer. And he's setting up a verbal diagram 
And what she says, if you want to get from here to here, if you want to learn to be discerning without damning, and you want to learn how to treat others the way you want to be treated, the way the Bible says that you should treat people, what's the way to connect the points? Verses 7 through 11, through prayer. Who is man or woman enough for this calling? Who can live the golden rule out perfectly? We're tempted to judge. Even when we're good, our goodness can be a half-veiled attempt at blessing ourselves. But through prayer, God convicts us of our actions, of our attitudes, of our motivations, and He enables us to live gladly with Him as our King, honoring His law, loving God by loving others. Don't you want that this morning? The good news for you is this. You have not. Why? Because you ask not. Maybe he'll give you a good night's sleep tonight when you pray. But if that's all you ask for, what are you missing out on? Pray with me, please. Father, we need you. This message this morning may in earnest be directed more at your disciples as opposed to those who do not know you yet. But Lord, if there is blood that courses through our vein, if there is um, breath that passes through our nostrils, we need you. Whether we are committed followers of Christ or whether we don't know you, we need you. And Lord, we're reminded today of the tremendous standard that you have set in your word. The Sermon on the Mount. It instructs us on how to love God and how to love our neighbors. And we admit we fall so woefully short. God, if our standard of uh, relating to each other is any indication of our love for you, then we love you not. So God, I pray that you enable us by your spirit this morning to ask for the greater gifts. Yes, to continue to pray for for those terrestrial things that are our immediate concerns. But God, that we, we would pray that you would do such a work in our spirit that we would shine for you. That our love for you and our love for others would be palpable. People wouldn't have to guess. They would know that these are men and women who have spent time with their king. God, have your work among us. In Jesus' name.